0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, "'Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. "'Go into my servant. "'It may be that I shall obtain children by her.' And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she had saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress.' And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction." He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, you, ladies. Appreciate that. Good morning. Um, I think it's... appropriate to feel a little bit of anger after you read and hear that scripture. Um, The passage we're dealing with is the father of our faith, Abram, later called Abraham, and his wife, Sarai, later called Sarah, beating Hagar and sending her out to the wilderness as a single mom. Um, when you consider that these, this is the father, mother of our faith, uh, abusing someone that's vulnerable, it's pretty sobering, and it should make you feel angry. It certainly does me. Um, the, this is not something that is common today, but at the same time, church abuse is very common today, and today we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, in your mind, you might go to news stories of the Roman Catholic priest, over 4,000 that abused over 10,000 children for 50 years, and that report came out almost 20 years ago, or the report from the Southern Baptist Convention a couple years ago that came out that showed continual mishandling of sexual abuse allegations, their victims... Uh, intimidating victims, uh, unwillingness to change. uh, The SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, has had some major problems from this. You can think about your friends, my friends, that are some of the thousands that have left the church due to church abuse, so we're going to talk about it. Where my mind actually went to was personal stories uh, that I've uh, dealt with. Uh, Many of you know that I am technically part-time at the church, and I run a nonprofit that helps to launch Christian leaders and to grow and to stay healthy. And about 50% of our work is with pastors, and it's a lot of work to keep a pastor healthy. It's a lot of work. And it's really frustrating for me because when I think about how much of my career and time is spent towards this, when I hear examples of spiritual abuse, it just is like a punch in the gut to me, Um, because I'm working so hard at it, and I think about all the church planters that I've assessed, all the church leaders I've coached, all the elder boards I've consulted, and um, it's just tough to just, sometimes you feel like an oncologist that has victories, but man, the cancer just keeps coming, and your schedule is full. Uh, a <clears throat> few of you know that, um, actually, I don't know if I've ever talked about this to church, for for three years, I've been employed here three years, and um, for about nine or ten years actually, I was part of a network that's gotten national uh, um, um, fame mostly in the negative in recent years to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Mike Cosper, who's a host, is a friend of mine. He assessed me as a church planter back in 2006, and about a quarter of the people interviewed on the uh, podcast were friends. And most of them were dealing with church abuse, mostly connected, at, uh, according to the podcast, to, to Mark Driscoll. And I remember Mark, who's a friend, would say to us, I've been walking around depressed for 10 years. And uh, there would periodically flare up some difficulty, abuse. He would repent things would move on, but we just kept seeing it again and again until it just finally got worse and worse to the degree that some of my best friends were the ones that were in charge, that were elders at his church, in charge of keeping him accountable, and they just were like beyond themselves knowing what to do. So when I think about it, I think of uh, personal friends uh, that have dealt with this. So today we're going to talk about this, uh, spiritual abuse, because that's what our text talks about Uh, We're going to talk about how God brings cultural reform and personal healing too. okay? And then finally, we're going to hear from uh, Kelly. I'm going to have Kelly uh, tell some of her story with this, um, which I think is uh, really, really helpful for you to hear. A couple things before we jump in. First of all, um, many of you might be asking, what happened to my head? (laughs) I got in a fight. You should see the other guy, and today we're talking about spiritual abuse from church leaders, okay? Uh, Just kidding. I haven't actually heard of any uh, spiritual abuse uh, reports uh, at our church or uh, in its history. Uh, It is nice to have a pastor that is low, as as opposite of power-hungry as Jeff Ramsey to work with, but we're full of sinners And we're full of uh, situations and vulnerable to places. It's wise to talk about this, not so much that uh, we have a pressing issue on our minds or things you should be concerned about right now, but for preparing for the day that we have to, as a body, handle this the right way. So covering this in advance and just going through the next scripture, which is what we're doing in Genesis 16. Uh, is helpful to help prepare ourselves so that when and if it happens, uh, we can handle it rightly. So, you ready? Okay, so we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about spiritual abuse. We're going to talk about cultural reform and personal healing. All right, so spiritual abuse. Now, this comes, Genesis 16 comes right after what? Genesis 15. All right? Yes. Okay? Um And Genesis 15 is a time where God promised, re-promised, a son to Abram. And he said, you're going to have as many descendants as stars in the sky. And then God shows that he's willing to uphold the covenant he's making with him by upholding both sides. His side of the deal and Abram's side of the deal. But then 10 years pass between chapters 15 and 16. And now we have Sarai, his wife, showing up, Matt. Showing up, Matt. Abram has told her, I suppose, for 10 years that he's talked to God and God's promised a son, but now she's well past menopause and there's no way anything's going to happen unless they take matters in their own hands. Okay? So this is what happens. Sarai chooses making a baby over waiting in faith in God. And then it starts to unravel. Now, is it understandable? Yes, it's understandable. Does is it, is it make sense why that temptation, if not falling into that temptation, if not doing it, would make sense? Yes, it makes sense. Back in this day and age, having a baby, uh, developing and building a family, having a legacy was everything for multiple reasons. But Sarah has no children. And she is past menopause, and so they're going to take matters in their own hands. So she offers her slave, Hagar the Egyptian, to Abram and since Hagar is legally her property she can take Hagar's child as her own and build her family according to the culture of the day. Abram has sex with Hagar she gets pregnant then Hagar looks with Sarai in contempt she gets a little bit of an attitude we don't know why possibly it's that she's gotten pregnant with Abram but Sarai couldn't you know how that happens right uh, and so she's feeling a little bit superior, supposedly, and because Sarai is old and barren, but Sarai and Sarah couldn't produce, which was often the, um, the uh, identity of, you know, at the time of being a successful woman was the ability to have babies. Sarai gets mad at Abram. She says, may this contempt be on you. Then she says, I gave you my slave girls for your embrace. Literally, she says, I put my slave girl in between your legs. And now she's treating me with contempt. So what does Abram do? He's incredibly passive. It's interesting. Abram's actually really active at work, like delivering a lot, like this bold warrior kind of move. But at home, he's really passive. That's a whole nother sermon right there. But Abram's acting a lot like Adam. Both men, Abram and Adam, heard from God directly. Their wives didn't. Both men, Abram and Adam, listened to the voice of their wife. Both men received what their wife gave them, Eve the fruit to Adam, uh, Um. And Sarai gave Hagar to Abram. Both men passively did what their wives said. Both men confused the delights offered to them with the blessing that would come of it. And both of them dealt with the severity of a curse. And if anybody in this day and age starts pushing polygamy, which is possible legally in in time in the next few decades it's going to be pretty obvious that polygamy is a curse. Anytime anybody's ever gone out with two people, I've told you the story about me going out with two, two people at the same time, it's bad, okay? It sounds real good initially, it's really bad. Abram's got two wives, two sons, they're all fighting with each other, and in this case, they fight with each other forever because their first son's name is Ishmael, and who's he become the father of? Anybody? Anybody? Islam and, and the, ethnically the Arabs, right? So the Arabs are the sons and daughters of Ishmael. Who's the sons and daughters of Isaac, the second born? The Jews, still happening today. So war starts and it never ends in this family, all right? Um, so Hagar, what's sad about Hagar is her name is never spoken by Abram and Sarai. It's only by the writer, the narrative of the story. And yet she's also explicitly called an Egyptian. That's her identity. What's important here is the author's pointing out she's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She has no power. And when Sarai complains about her, Abram heartlessly says, she's in your power, do as you please, which is just heartless. And she's devalued, she's dismissed, she's demeaned as a slave, and what does Sarai do? She did the same things, we'll pick this up in a second, that the Egyptians later do to her descendants. She dealt with her harshly. The word harshly is the same word that is used with the Egyptians in their slavery when they're not making enough bricks. They are beat. They are physically beat. Taylor Swift says, love is a ruthless game unless you play it. Come on, Swifties. This is probably the most important moment for you right now. Love is a ruthless game unless you play it. Close, good, and right. State of grace. Am I really more knowledgeable about Taylor Swift than a church with this particular demographic? That's amazing. I'll I'll sing it next time. All right, here's the worst part. Love is a ruthless game with this family, and there is no definition of good and right yet. They're stuck in it. Owning a slave and abusing her was common in that pagan culture. It was customary to use that slave and take her children to build your own family. It was even okay to send a pregnant woman and her son out into the wilderness to die. It's clear, though, from Scripture, this is not okay with God. This was spiritual and physical abuse, at least. Now, by the way, we talked about physical and sexual abuse two years ago when I had my sister in to talk about Bathsheba. Um, and so I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about spiritual abuse. And since many of us don't really have or have been taught or know what we're really talking about, let me define it. Spiritual abuse is when a leader... Uses their authority to control or manipulate people under them to accomplish a spiritual goal. Spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader uses their authority or control to control or manipulate people under them to accomplish a spiritual goal. It's basically using bad methods towards good goals, it's abuse because it uses people. It's so damaging because it's done by a person in spiritual authority. They're supposed to represent God. they are done it in the name of God, or they're working for a cause of God. And that means Hagar was disgraced by the people of grace. The last people on earth that should have done this is God's people. Justin and Lindsay Holcomb say it better than I can. They wrote a book called Rid of My Disgrace. I recommend for abuse victims, but also they wrote this on the blog, which I think is great, content-wise. Disgrace is the opposite of grace. Grace is love that seeks you out even if you have nothing in, get nothing in return. Grace is being loved when you are or feel unlovable. Grace has the power to turn despair into hope. Grace listens, lifts up, cures, transforms, and heals. Disgrace destroys, causes pain, deforms, and wounds. It alienates and isolates. Disgrace makes you feel worthless, rejected, unwanted, and repulsive, like a person, persona non grata, a person without grace. Disgrace silences and shuns. Your suffering of disgrace is only increased when others force your silence. The refusals of others to speak about abuse and listen to survivors to tell the truth is a refusal to offer grace and healing. Sarai and Abram are going after God's goals, a baby, through using an already vulnerable woman. It's spiritual abuse. And God hates abuse. So the question is, what does God do about it? Well, he first brings cultural reform and then, second of all, he brings personal healing. Let's talk about cultural reform. The Bible says in this text, in fact, all the first five books of the Bible, we call the Pentateuch, the Jews tend to call the uh, Torah, it's the same thing, was written by Moses in Exodus, all right? And so, when the Jews are leaving Egypt, coming out of slavery into the promised land, that's when. Moses is writing the first five books of the Bible. And there's something going on here in the story of Hagar that relate to the broader story that you need to know. And it's cultural form. Moses is writing this saying, Hey, fellow children of God, we've got to do better than this. We cannot keep embracing evil ways. And Moses is writing under the inspiration of God It's one of the few times in history, it's pretty fascinating when you think about it, when anyone has ever laid upon at one time a whole new set of laws, habits, and practicing. It's a perfect time to do it with people coming out of slavery with no structure. There's only been two or three times in history anybody's ever done this. Usually, we're changing our laws a little bit by a little bit, our habits and our patterns. Right now, we're kind of doing that without any knowing direction of where we're going, But this is one of the few times in history where there's a total extreme makeover of God's people, of culture. And that's exactly what's happening here. And when you read Genesis 16, Hagar's story, continues in chapter 21, what you're going to see is there's these parallels between what's going on with Hagar and what happens later when the Jews come out of Egypt. David um, Foreman, who's a, a Jewish rabbi, really brought this to my attention. It was really helpful. In Genesis 16, Hagar is called an Egyptian, right? We already talked about that. It's striking for two reasons. In 15, God had just mentioned to Abram, you're going to have descendants that are going to be slaves. And now, in 16, Egypt is mentioned. Second of all, this is, of course, where the Jewish enslavement takes place, is in Egypt, right? In in Genesis 16 and Exodus 15, Hagar is the foreigner. Later, the Jews will be foreigners, in Exodus 16, uh, and uh, the word harshly is used to describe Sarai's abuse, like that's that physical abuse I've mentioned. It's the exact same word to describe what the Egyptians do to uh, to the Jews, as I mentioned before. In uh, Exodus 3, when you go back to the uh, burning bush with Moses, God tells Moses to go back to the Egyptians, and he'll deliver the nation through them the going back to the very people that have uh, that wanted to kill him in the same way here in Genesis 16 God tells the angel of the Lord tells Hagar to go back to Abram and Sarai and he'll build a nation through her All right Hagar's story picks up in 21 okay I mentioned that and 13 years later Ishmael's 13 and Isaac uh, is just a toddler he's They're celebrating the fact that he's being weaned. And Ishmael mocks this toddler, Isaac, which is kind of a wild man of a, wild donkey of a man thing kind of dude. You know, he's a crazy teenager, right? And Sarah says, that's it. I'm done with Hagar and Ishmael. She orders Abraham, his name has changed at this point, orders Abraham to get rid of her. Abraham really struggles with this this time. He now values, of course, his firstborn son and Hagar, it seems. And he struggles with it. God says, send him away. And so he does. And he sends her away with Hagar and Ishmael. And initially, we think this is a horrible decision. And sure enough, it looks like it's going to turn out bad because she's in the desert with her son. They're actually running out of water. And then we're afraid they're going to die. Okay? Okay? Well, let's keep going with the parallels, all right? In Genesis 21, Ishmael is persecuting Isaac like later the Egyptians persecute the Jews. Abram sends Hagar away, well, guess what? With bread on her shoulder, and the Egyptians leave, uh, the Jews leave Egypt with bread on their shoulders. Hagar gets lost in the wilderness, and so do the Jews, the same wilderness, Hagar experiences this water crisis in the desert. There's no water, and so do the Jews at one point. There's a divine intervention that shows her where the water is, and the same thing happens to the Jews when he brings water out of the rock. Divine intervention, uh, it comes after she cries out, and so do the Jews. The angel of the Lord says, do not fear. And Moses says the same thing to the Jews. Do not fear when they're facing the Red Sea. Hagar leaves a slave, but then becomes free to deliverance of God, and the Jews leave the slaves and are uh, left as deliverance of God. In other words, there's something going on in details with this story that as Moses is writing to the Jews coming out of Egypt, he's saying, hey, we're not the first ones that have gone through this. And in fact, we were the ones on the other side all along. Moses writes in Exodus 22, 21 through 24 this uh, command from God You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. So God, the purpose of Hagar's story is to help the Jews empathize with the outsider, and motivate them from the inside out to embrace God's new moral law that would bring justice. Now I tend to complain about legislation because it's just behavior modification, but the truth is the Mosaic law radically changed this world. It defined what's good and right. It gave justice to the poor. It fed the hungry. It's taking care of the orphan, the widow, the aliens, and other vulnerable people. And all of our laws that go along those lines, we need to turn around and look back at what God did through Moses and say, thank you, because none of that was there before that. If we learn anything, is that legislation has its place to bring justice to society. It does. Sadly, the Jews continued to treat the outsiders as outsiders. The habits continue. So Jesus came to earth to change people from the inside out, didn't he? That's what he came to earth to. It's because behavior modification wasn't enough. So when Jesus came, he talked a lot about the spiritual abuse, didn't he? He talked a lot about spiritual abuse of the Jewish leaders at the time. And he trained his disciples how to lead with godly character. How to not do so for their own gain. And Jesus leads people with his integrity. So really, he really fulfilled the law twice. He lived the perfect life, a righteous life, on our behalf. And he died the perfect death, dying on the cross for our sins twice. He fulfilled the law twice, taking our punishment. And that's why Peter calls him the chief shepherd or senior pastor of the church. Now, Paul later says okay it's about character we need leaders from the inside out and he lays down character qualities for new leaders that we use with our elders and by the way next week we are going to commission uh two new elders matt noble and uh dan fitzgerald uh, here uh we just took a congressional vote and it was uh it, was, it was, there was there was nobody against it at all both of everybody voted to affirm them and we're going to do that next week And Jeff is going to unpack next week, take a week, a break from Abraham and unpack really what our church leaders are supposed to do. So we're going to pick up this conversation. We're talking about the negative today with abuse and what they're not supposed to do. And we're going to talk about the positive and how we need to do that in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is really the chief shepherd of the church. And that elders or church leaders are under shepherds they are imperfect and they can't do their job without the power of God. What I want you to see here is that God begins to do something from a societal level. This disgusting habits that we're reading about are not completely gone, but you've got to go pretty remotely in the world to still see them at play today. And it's not just the Jewish culture or all monotheistic religions. Almost every culture and society on the earth has been changed to recognize vulnerable people and to start or to build laws to protect them. Not all, but close. And it started back then. Furthermore, now we have 2.4 million so-called Christians in the world of the 8 million that are Christ followers and committed to Christ, changing them from the inside out. Okay? Uh, who knows what the actual numbers are, but that's our best estimates, all right? Um, so Jesus brings ultimate societal change. But it's not just the whole group, it's not just the whole world God's concerned about. He's concerned about Hagar, He's concerned about personal healing. God shows up and he delivers Hagar beautifully in this story. Now, don't miss the good news, what happens with Hagar. Because there's a lot to learn. The angel of the Lord came to her. Now, there's a big little word with what I just said. The angel of the Lord. The definite article, T-H-E, makes a huge difference. It brings a lot of mystery and discussion. It's not an angel of the Lord that says, God says, or that angel says, God will multiply your offspring. No, this is the angel of the Lord, and this angel says, I will multiply your offspring. He speaks with power and authority. And many people think this is a Christophany. It is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, that Christ herself comes in to seek and find her. Right, That's what the discussion is about, because it's so... Strong. What it says about this angel of the Lord, he found her. It's awesome. It reminds me of Luke 19.10, which I think is probably the big idea of the book of Luke. The son of man, that is Jesus, has come to seek and to save the lost. Hagar's lost. And she's lost twice, actually. And both times, the angel of the Lord shows up both time God comes to her seeking after her finding her and when he does third the text says that God sees and listens to this desperate woman God cares about single mothers God cares about the refugee God cares about the immigrant God cares about those that have no shelter, that have no water, that are starving in the desert. And just before cat- catastrophe happens, what happens? God seeks, finds, sees, hears, and ultimately delivers her. When the people of God don't come help, God finds. When the people of God are totally blind to their sin, God sees. When no one else is around to listening more, God hears. And when no one can deliver you from your bondage, God saves. That's what's going on. It starts with God. Grace. Justin Lindsay Holcomb again continues to speak to survivors of abuse. And they say, To your sense of disgrace, God restores, heals, and recreates through grace. A good short definition of grace is one way love. This is opposite of your experience of assault, which was one-way violence. To your experience of one-way violence, God brings one-way love. The contrast between the two is staggering. One-way love does not avoid you, but comes near. Not because of your personal merit, but because of your need. It is the lasting transformation that takes place in human experience. One-way love is the change agent you need for the pain that you are experiencing. God finds, God sees, God hears, God heals, God sets you free. The big idea today is that God sees the injustice of his people, but his grace removes all disgrace. I would like Kelly to come on up and tell us a little bit about uh, her story. Uh, Kelly Manley um, has been on staff a couple of years now. Should we tell them? You probably already know. Kelly and her husband Matt are going to be leaving this summer because the Navy wants their return on investment. Uh, Matt will be graduating from dental school at UNC. And um, the Navy, Jesus will own you. The Navy will tell you where to move, right? Yes. Okay. All right. So Jesus is still. That's in the plan. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm
2: still praying. <laughs>
1: against...
2: We've been praying for. A, <laughs>
1: we've been praying for a port in Raleigh. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's true. It's I didn't have true. To yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your story? Um, Church abuse that you've dealt with it it wasn't it wasn't physical it was spiritual
2: yeah it it was um, back in twenty seventeen um, I joined staff at a Cary church location of a multi campus church, and uh we had known about it for a while um in its infancy we uh I think I maybe was approached to maybe lead worship there at one time but we were kind of concerned at the beginning stages of some immaturity things we saw but fast forward it's 2017 there's more campuses now Um, and so we attributed that to growth and positive growth Um, alongside of that they were hiring a new campus pastor. His name um, is Jason and um, we met him. We really fell in love with his family. Um, not only was he a really good pastor, but he genuinely had a lot to offer for, from our perspective and from his perspective to how to continue positive growth Continue positive communication structures within the church itself. Um, so we were just really encouraged by what we saw on the outside. And so um, we, I, I was pregnant with Jordan, um, and fast forward, we welcomed Jordan later that year, November of 2017. Um, That brought its own complications and, like, physical things that I just did not anticipate. That was tricky. Matt filed for FMLA uh, to stay home a little longer to help our family. And so when we started, I finally kind of, Healed from that, and we started to get back into church life. Um, Our associate pastor at Cary, so under Jason, had shared with us that his pay had gotten cut um, during the Christmas holiday, and they were in the process of also trying to start their family. Um, And this man had been a big part of the growth of church and had been there for a long time. Um, And so that was the first time our ears perked up and said, you know, that doesn't feel right. Um, But I think over time it felt like things sort of resolved, not really resolved, but sort of resolved enough to where we said, Okay, we we still really want to be here. We still really believe in Jason. We still believe in what's still to come. And uh I that at that time also had pursued counseling for some of the post I don't, I don't know if it was postpartum stuff, but like just walking through some counseling as well through a counselor who was on staff, who had also been a part of the church from the very beginning. He was over the nonprofit wing of the church itself, and that'll be, he was also on the board. Um, I sought counseling by him, and that was really helpful. Uh, he helped me walk through that. There's positive, you know, I felt a lot better. I walked through healing and that, and did all the steps necessary that I felt like were important to move forward in a positive way. And that was the case. And um, fast forward into 2018, into the summer, going into the fall, we're starting to bring out a giving campaign for the church all all campuses, and we were going to call the giving campaign Revival. The motto was, we're bringing revival to the triangle. Um, Looking back, you know, it's like, who is revival? What is revival? You know, and in hindsight, it's like, in a way, passively, it felt like what we were saying is God is bringing us to the triangle. And our church is going to be the means and method of how God's going to be changing the triangle. We're the conduit for that change on behalf of God. Uh, That was kind of how it felt. Um, Our campus pastor, Jason, had been elevated by this time to the top of leadership. He was seeing emails now that were more pertinent to the actual financial status of where we were as a, as a church as a whole. And so he was starting to see emails saying, we're barely making payroll. And at this time, we were about to acquire another campus location. We were about to acquire another building and sign on for a $2.7 million loan additional to the already $5.5 million loan that we already had on top of that. And so the immediate concern is we cannot financially make this work. We can't, you know, if we're just paying interest on a loan we're not, we're barely making payroll, there is an issue. We cannot, we cannot proceed in good faith to do this as stewards over God's people, God's tithing. Um, and when he confronted the leadership, the response was, you need to sit down and shut your mouth. Your job is on the line And they lived at a parsonage as well with the church. So everything was tied to the church. Their family was going to be very affected if Jason didn't fall in line. And so that was so alarming for us. And to see a brother in Christ and a pastor go from so excited and so plugged in and so excited for what God was doing to a complete 180 of he's disengaged, he's withdrawn, he was best friends with the lead pastor, he's no longer associating with him anymore. They are at opposite ends of a table. Um, It was so evident to us the brokenness behind what was happening. And so it very much felt like, God is continuing to move here. There's nothing to see behind the curtain of our financial status. We continue to move on. And your concerns don't matter. Um, We wrote emails of concern over the budget numbers not matching Where we were at Cary itself, just even at Cary. When we did that, the response was, "I'm sorry, you misunderstood me. When I misunderstood budget, you know, like the the communication was a deflection. It was very much a gaslighting, kind of a passive aggressive. There's nothing to see here. There's no concern here." Continue on Um, And that was the pattern, you know, that was kind of the theme that we continued to see and so from September of 2018 October November December January February March It was like a five-month time frame of sitting in this Time period of saying where is the lord in this like everything seems so twisted then the the like hypocrisy of claiming god but dismissing a lack of care for our family for jason and his family for the multiple families that also shared our concern I'm thankful we were not alone in our concern. We had brothers and sisters who shared that with us. But they were not getting anywhere either. Their concerns also were very much um, dismissed. Um, It would turn out that that very counselor who had counseled me for my grief would pull me into the same counseling room maybe a year later. And eventually the conversation would get to him attacking my character and say that I was taking part in spreading rumors in the church. Um, I, I think that was probably one of the biggest hurts. Like, I'd worked so hard <laughs> to like seek God and do all the right things for God. Um, sorry. Um, so the man who had helped me was now hurting me in this very real, real way of attacking my character. And I think that was the 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 overall theme was a very toxic environment. You don't matter. continue on. Um, our pastor thankfully found another job, and he moved on, and my Sunday would be like the following Sunday. you know like that was our answer ultimately was to we just had to leave. we We were not going to see change. we tried we We just had to leave. And um, when our son, the the Sunday our pastor left, I just was on the floor crying, like, feeling like we lost. Um, We lost the fight. Um, We lost. evil one that that's how it felt um, you know um, that's how it felt for us um so thanks (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um,
1: so the fact that it wasn't ever owned up obviously couldn't and especially that with the response from leadership and even the counselor complicated things in you
2: yeah um I think the question of, like, God, do you see? Uh, Do you see what's going on? Why don't you care? Um, It was kind of a torture to be in front of a microphone and lead worship every week and to have the torment in my head of, like, at any moment, I could speak out this truth to the whole congregation and say, this is wrong. It took everything in me not to do that. And I kept waiting for God to, like, put it in my heart to do it. I'm like, God, I am right here. I am in front of a microphone every week. At any time, you can tell me to do this, and I will obey. And I just never felt that. Um, and I, I just felt like I was continually asking the Lord to make it clear where, what were we supposed to do in this? What was our role? Um, I'm thankful it was not just my burden to carry. There were other elders who were asking the same things, so it was not just on me. And that was a relief. I knew I knew we weren't alone, but it felt very isolating at the same time because I still had to go to staff meetings. I still had to see these people and 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 hear God's word being shared and it feel very twisted and manipulated, and so for a while, it was hard to read God's word after that. God's word felt gross, (laughs) like even though I knew the truth of who God was, but it was even hard to read the Bible. It was hard to pray. It was hard to like feel like God was safe because in a place of church where I thought I was safe, I felt all of a sudden, a place of like safety was a place of fear and hostility, and it was hard at first to reconcile. God is not someone you need to fear and fear, fear hostility toward. It is the opposite. He loves you. He sees you very much like Hagar. Um, God sees. God hears. For sure.
1: And what did you, you learn about God in time? And how do you see God's people differently? Yeah.
2: I mean, God showed up in a very tangible way. Our pastor had found a job. Other coworkers left. They found jobs. I was still looking. And we were not having an income. My income and Matt's part-time Army income was it. And so, thank God, our elder who was with us in it, like tithe,d to our family, while I was searching for another job, because he knew. And he, so, in, in very like God met our need in a very tangible financial way through these people. So, so God was still showing up, and being like God was still being God through the people of God, just not through the not through the leaders of this church um and so like I don't I don't know if I view people of God differently I think I just have more of a spirit of discernment a spirit of listening a spirit of empathy hopefully
1: I think you do uh now you work for a church
2: I do yeah okay how do you see God's people
1: differently
2: yeah yeah uh I don't judge, I don't, I don't blame people for not wanting to be in church, but I also, I'm thankful I can be here and see God still in the people. It, like, there are healthy churches, you know, like, and so that, that's, like, I know, but I also understand people who can't walk in the doors of a church because of their hurt, and I don't think that, like, I can totally understand that and, and empathize with that, and there's, like, no shame in, in, like, extending God's grace to people who would, who would not want to be a part of the church but still identify with Jesus. And, you know, like, just that's, I can very much empathize with that and get that. But I'm so thankful I can, that we've pursued and continue to pursue what it does look like to have a healthy church and the people of God and and. And functioning in community because that's so important. Yeah.
1: But there's a little bit more sobriety about.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Probably sobriety, like feet on the ground, realism about. Yeah. Let's be honest about us being human and right. people and how things can not just go bad, but sometimes really way off. Right. As well as the other way. Obviously, with the last couple of years with us, it's been a delight. Yeah. To have you around? Same. <laughs> Anything else you want to say?
2: Yeah, I just want to say thank you. Um, I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for the opportunity to have led worship here and find a place of safety here, find a spirit of very much transparency and love. Um, I know we don't do church perfectly, but... um, You guys have kind of set a high bar. (laughs) You know, like, if I'm being honest, I'm scared about our future and how hard is it going to be to like navigate what does church look like for us when we have to move? How hard is that going to be for us to find or to navigate ministry again? Um, I fear for that, but like, at the same time, I'm also so, so thankful for you guys. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to share. Um, some of our
1: story. So let me say a couple uh, things of just observation. First of all, the Mainly's have been a delight, a delight. And uh, watching them, when we interviewed. It was clear that God was rebuilding uh, their view of church and we hoped and prayed that we could be a, a safe place and it seems like that's been the case. Uh, it's just been a delight to have you both here. Um, couple things, if you, there's a couple lessons to be learned that I think was done so well and as an example, if you're the uh, survivor of spiritual abuse, okay? Uh, there's something, as you probably noticed, that's significant. It's often called survival uh, survivor's fear that can be a significant level of shame and depression and anxiety and stress, especially when you're encouraged to not speak up. There's already plenty in, in you uh, to not want to speak up, uh, but it's really important, uh, as Kelly did, to reach out to a trusted friend and have a community. To work it through uh, kelly and i are both available to talk with you a little bit um, i've had my fair share of church hurt as well and we'll walk you through uh, in confidence with um, that and may put you in touch with people that can help you um, if you're a friend it's dealt with spiritual abuse what should you do if you're a friend of someone that's dealt with spiritual abuse what should you do be a friend A lot of times you might think, let's, partly because we're all kind of critical of things, well, let me be a crime scene investigator and really get to the bottom of this. That's the wrong thing to do when you're being disclosed to as a friend about someone's hurt. Most likely, your job is not to investigate the crime scene, and you would know what you were doing in the first place. Be a friend. Listen. Let them speak up. See. Hear them seek after them if you're a leader of a workplace or a church uh, you should have some kind of way of handling these things it allows me in the moment to be a friend and know that later on if somebody has to kind of work something out and find the details of the story that's going to be happening later but first of the most important thing we can do is make sure we don't rob someone of grace and healing of being able to share their story okay if you're witnessing this in your church, what should you do? If it's this church, speak up. And, and I would welcome you to speak to any church leader, staff or elder. Uh, and and uh, by all means, let's keep short accounts on it, even early indications of that. If you're not, and it's another church, you're still in the other church maybe, uh, somebody's told you about this and you're listening online, uh, do exactly what Kelly did. Speak up to the right appropriate leaders in the right and appropriate ways work for change first not on necessarily facebook or a microphone from the beginning work with it uh, and people and allow the process to do it have some self-restraint uh and and deal with it it, it can be hard to have self restraint, but speak up sometimes you're going to have a listening ear sometimes it will change things and often it will reform and you're going to be able to be help to cause uh, some healing. Um, If you can't, it's okay to leave a church. I think it's helpful if you leave a church to the right and appropriate people to say why you're leaving that church and be honest about that. I think that's actually really, really helpful. Uh, So there's a little bit more wisdom that depends on the circumstances that you can certainly be wise to process through, but there's a couple general principles. Speak up. Because it's, it's going to get harder for you if you don't, and for other people. And two, it's okay to leave if a church is not changing. Okay, let's get to the broader question. Okay, I'm going to run back to the sermon in just a minute. We'll wrap up in about three or four minutes. But is it okay to deconstruct? Yes. It's okay to deconstruct. Everyone has wrong views about God and the church. The church does. This church does. We all do. And you do too. You're going to need to deconstruct and reconstruct as a, often in your life. Okay? I tend to think of this as a house. Let's say the foundation of the house is supposed to be firm, strong, ever-changing, perfect, like Christ. And let's say the rest of the structure that you could see is the church, the people of God, the community of God. What do you expect Well, you need that foundation to be as strong and as solid as possible. And you also expect that that house is going to need some maintenance. Winds are going to blow. hail's going to come. uh, There's going to be damage. You've got to take down and rebuild on a regular basis to maintain a healthy house, right? In the same way, Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. And the foundation... It's supposed to be solid. But guess what? Sometimes you find out that the person laid your foundation did a shoddy job. And you have to come down and deconstruct the foundation too. It's okay. You, If you've grown up with a really good theological view, you're probably still going to have some weak foundation in this area or that area a few times in your life. And you need to deconstruct. But you should expect deconstructing the people of God Things that are made out of lighter materials like wood and asphalt shingles, you should expect them to blow away. You should expect the church to need regular maintenance uh, and those kind of things. But ultimately, what I encourage you to do with your deconstructing is to do two things. Narrow the problem. First of all, allow yourself to say, I don't even want to read God's Bible, uh, the Bible right now. I'm really having trouble with that. Allow yourself emotionally to live with that grace. But then narrow the problem. What's the real problem I'm facing? I'm facing a lack of integrity or a blindness from these leaders at this church. And then work on that. Deconstruct. Ultimately, you want to reconstruct. Because otherwise, if you just deconstruct it all, all you got left is rubble. And rubble doesn't really allow you to have more accurate views, it doesn't allow you to have accurate expectations, it doesn't bring the benefit of healing, it doesn't bring you the benefit of shelter. Uh, ultimately, it's got to be reconstructed. So if you, if you lead yourself a little bit and get more specific, are, do we have a foundation issue? Does it need some repair? Is it a overall, like, a, have I just been idealistic about this was supposed to be in my dream house all the time and now it's, like, falling apart? Um, it's helpful to do that. So it's okay to deconstruct. Long term, you need to reconstruct. Why? Because you need a regular community of people that remind you every week that you're loved no matter what. And that's the very message of grace. And that's why you ultimately need a community of people to remind you of that. Okay. So there's a couple of uh, things that were on topic. Going back, To Genesis 16, let's remember that God sees the injustice of his people, but his grace removes disgrace. The word removes is key there. I love that. God's grace removes the disgrace. There's a doctrine called expiation. And it's that Christ's work completely removes and puts away our sin. It's both. Listen to this. It's both the sins that we've committed and the sins that have been committed against us. It's both. Typical gospel presentations, we only talk about God removing the sins that we committed. But the gospel also says he cleanses us from the sins committed against us. Now, that's not cool. I don't know what's cool. And for victims of abuse, that is so helpful to hear that Jesus Christ's work comes to remove the sins that were committed against you. Ezekiel 36 carries this idea of expiation, both your sins and others. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26 says uh, the prophecy, talking about what God's doing through Jesus. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, so there's the personal part too. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. Earlier in our prayer of confession, remember what we read in Psalm 103? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. I cannot repeat that verse without thinking about my mom saying to me, now kids, now John, how far away does God put us? Your sin's away from you. As far as the east is from the west, my mom would say, John, how far away is the east is from the west? And I'd say, that's really far. And she said, that's how far God places your sin. He removes it completely from you. So, I what I love to hear, though, like Hagar, where you start seeing uh, her... God's starting to rebuild her. I love seeing stories like Kelly where God starts to rebuild. Um, I I love, and there's a reason why I have a heart for healthy Christian leaders. It's because I have been an un- unhealthy one. And so to be able to say, uh, God, you have healed us, guess what it also does? It leaves in you a heart and a passion for the outsider for the one that is not hearing grace, for the one that needs to get rid of their disgrace and the gospel brings it and you're able to speak it. God sees the injustice of the people and removes the disgrace with his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much just for the good news that even in the hardest, most terrible places that we would never expect, expect to see, Um, sin and evil, Lord, you bring new life. You redeem. You give grace. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.